This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode 646. We've got a great show with Dr. Richard Corsi of the University of California, Davis. We're going to catch up with him on some recent events and also look at how COVID has accelerated IAQ research to practice. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing the show. And don't forget about after the show, we continue the discussion at afterthoughts.iaqradio.com. Our marquee sponsor is Instascope at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are the American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA.org, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, ACGIH.org, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute, CIRIScience.org, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA.org, the Restoration Industry Association, RestorationIndustry.org, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, IICRC.org, Healthy Buildings America 2021, HB2021-America.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, AEMLINC.com, Particles Plus, ParticlesPlus.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, graywolfsensing.com, TSI Inc., TSI.com, Sunbelt Rentals, sunbeltrentals.com, April Air, April, A-I-R-E.com, Healthy Indoors Magazine, healthyindoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Victor Caffaro, Chesterfield, Virginia, who was first to identify. As the winner of half of a Nobel Prize in Physiology, Microbiota. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for today, November 19, 2021, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for the monitoring of the air. Expand your IQ investigations at TSI.com. Here's today's question. In the most in-demand course at UC Davis, it's taught in the chemical engineering department, and it attracts over 2,000 students per year. Back to you, Joe. All right. Dr. Richard Corsi, he recently joined UC Davis as the dean of the College of Engineering. Prior to that, he was the dean at the Massah College of Engineering and Computer Science at Portland State University, and for over 24 years, he worked at the University of Texas, Austin, where he taught numerous courses related to fluid mechanics, air pollution, and indoor air quality. Welcome back, Rich. It's been too long, six years. It's been a long time, Joe. Yeah, I agree. So thank you very much. You have been, uh, you know, you you helped us in the uh, early days and then in in the mid-years of IAQ Radio. We did a lot of research to practice shows, and and you brought on a couple of your students. And uh, what we'll do is we'll have John post those shows 
as, as the right, day right. goes on and we'll put them in the blog so people can go back and check out those past shows. But since you last joined us, you went to Portland State and now at UC Davis. Maybe you could update folks on uh, how that's all occurred and uh, what you're up to these days. Yeah, so th- thank you so much. Um, it occurred quickly, so I was not looking for other positions, and I was contacted by UC Davis about their open dean position. I didn't even know they had an open dean position, and the draw was was from a personal standpoint and from a professional standpoint just too great for me. I, I, I'll tell you a little, you and your listeners, a little secret is that when I was in high school, um, I, I desperately wanted to go to UC Davis t- uh, to get my undergraduate degree, and I was denied admission to UC Davis. I couldn't get in. Uh, ended up going somewhere, somewhere else and coming back to Davis for graduate school. And, and now I'm the dean of a very large college. So I've gone from being denied admission to being dean of the entire place. Uh, but, but we're, we're a, a large college. We have almost 6,000 students um, and 215 faculty members and just great staff, amazing staff, large, large base of staff and uh, eight departments, 12 different degrees. Um, doing some great research here. And my mission as dean is to help the college just keep pushing the boundaries of, of research and education. And we do a lot of community service. It's one of the things we're known for as well. And just, just having a positive impact on society. You know, you mentioned a couple of interesting facts about UC Davis. I didn't realize that, you know, that, um, and I don't want to give away the, uh, the trivia, wait, I think we may have had it. Uh, somebody may have answered it, but the trivia question, you got a couple of very interesting uh, classes there. One on on grapes. I forget the term. I had to look it up. Rich. Uh, the other uh, one. Our, our enology program is world class. So we have enology and viticulture. So uh, you know, wine wineries are pretty critical to the economy of California. And uh, and UC Davis has done a lot of research on on wine and 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 uh, 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 viticulture and and those you know vineyards and those kinds of things over the years. In fact. One of the members of the um, external advisory board, board of advisors for our enology program is Dwayne Wade, the ex-basketball player. So he comes to Davis sometimes now because he, I think he owns a winery in California. Mm-hmm. So, so that's pretty exciting. We've got Dwayne Wade coming to campus. Uh, we also have, uh, well, I, I, I can't give away the trivia question. We, right. we, we do have a laboratory in one of our chemical engineering courses that's about uh, how to make whiskey. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> So there's a lot of fun stuff going on on this campus. <laughs> Interesting place, huh? <laughs> well, let's, you know, over the last five or six years, a lot's happened. And uh, I'm just wondering, you know, we, we've, we used to really focus on research to practice. What do you see over the last five or six years as some of the important uh, research to practice breakthroughs or, or important research that's come out on, you know, that our practitioners should be aware of? Yeah, so before the pandemic, there was a lot of interesting research going on, some of which I think is still sort of at the early stages prior to practice, you know, translation to practice, and some of which is, some of which was, uh, was easily translated from research to practice. So, and before the pandemic, there was some really great research going on related to climate change and indoor air quality, particularly things like how to protect yourself from wildfire smoke, how to properly operate your home or your business or your school to reduce the exposure to wildfire smoke. There were good research on measurement and health effects and control strategies for wildfire smoke. So so there was a really good line of research there, and that's continuing. There's some really good research going on 
I think the other was the role of humans as sources of air pollution, um, the role of humans as sources of particles in indoor environments. Uh, even some recent research that's fantastic showing that ozone chemistry with squalling in your skin not only, not only leads to gaseous byproducts, which we can detect in air, but it can lead to ultrafine aerosol particles that are released from your skin from the oxidation chemistry that occurs. That's still, I would consider mostly at the research phase and whether or not it ever has any significance in practice, I'm not sure, but it's really interesting research. Uh, Impacts of body sprays that people put on themselves that oxidize on our body and that kind of thing. Some great research on semi-volatile organic compounds over the last six or seven years. The fact that uh, dust, if you don't, you know, clean dust regularly, they can accumulate a lot of of these um, what you know, very low vapor pressure chemicals that leach out of things like vinyl flooring uh, um, and plastics, etc., can really accumulate dust. So when that dust becomes airborne, it becomes a major, you know, when, which resuspended when people walk into a room or a classroom, um, that becomes a major route for our exposure to those kinds of chemicals. Of course, there was the big home chem study that I know uh, you came to, Joe, um, in Austin. Uh, a lot of interesting results came out of that. I think the most interesting were related to uh, the impacts of cooking on indoor air quality, but also on cleaning with chlorine um, cleaning agents and the chlorine chemistry that happens indoors that nobody had really ever quantified before until that study. That was John Abbott at the University of Toronto. During the pandemic, certainly there's been a lot of research related to the pandemic and related to to things like uh, respiratory aerosol generation, you know, how much aerosols do we generate when we speak, when we breathe, when we cough? Um, what is the impact of the volume of our voice on the generation of aerosols? Um, and it's certainly a lot of great research on masks, some research on, um, you know, what we know are effective control technologies like filtration, but also some good research on those unproven technologies, many of which don't appear to be very effective. So there's been a blast of research all over the place in the last five or six years, some of which I think is very translatable to practice now, some of which still has some time to go before we know whether it really needs to be translated to practice. Yeah, it seems like uh, COVID really accelerated things and um, both in, in looking at existing research, but also in designing new research like I know people have looked at uh, Dr. Milton's work a lot more now because he did a lot of work on viruses, you know, 30 years ago. And um, now that's back in the forefront. Yeah, I agree. And Don's really high quality researcher and the research he does is so important. He, you know, he was making the case that influenza uh, was an airborne infectious disease before a lot, a lot in the public health community were accepting that. And finally it was accepted early on in this in this pandemic, he was making the same case here for uh, transmission uh, of COVID-19 infection, uh, you know, as being from aerosols and has done some great work in that area. I think he's getting his due now. Um, yeah. yeah. I remember riding on a bus with him at that event you talked about in, in Texas at home camp, I think, or maybe that was indoor air. I think it was yeah. indoor air. It was also yeah. down that way. Fascinating gentleman. I can't get, I got to get a hold of him somehow though. Maybe you can help me out with that. I will do that. Show. He's so popular now. It's like trying to get him or Joe Allen or whatever. You know, you got to go through three layers. And I don't know these folks like I know you. So it's a little tougher. <laughs> but we appreciate it. Hey, what about um, 
right now there's a lot of common cold it seems like in our area is that still considered a droplet kind of thing or is that an aerosol issue yeah that's a great question i think it's the common cold is probably both right so um it's probably it's probably a combination of both i think that that the um the quanti- what we call the quanta generation rate the amount of stuff that has to come out to cause infection for the common cold is a lot less than it is for influenza. I mean, I'm sorry, the quanta generation rate is a, is a lot lower, which means you have to emit a lot more stuff to get infected with the common cold than say with influenza or even for COVID-19. Um, and so it's, it's sort of harder to catch the common cold, if you will. Um, and I think with the common cold, there's enough, and, I, and I'm going to admit not to be an expert on this, but I think that that there's enough evidence historically on research on the common cold that there's multiple pathways that are important with it. Uh, fomites, um, large droplets, and probably aerosols as well. Certainly for influenza, it looks like aerosols are pretty important. Um, and with, with COVID, I, you know, because we do a lot with cleaning and restoration people and, and deep cleaning and so forth, I'm getting the impression people are looking at aerosol as the only way people can get COVID. Is that accurate? So I don't think it's completely accurate. I do think with COVID, all of the data we've seen from outbreaks, the patterns suggest that uh, transmission by the airborne route uh, and by aerosols is dominant pathway. That doesn't mean it's the only pathway. I think it is still possible that, you know, if somebody is in those two or three days before showing symptoms and really shedding a lot uh, and coughs into their hand and touches an elevator button and then you touch it afterwards and then you touch your mouth, there's still the possibility there of becoming infected. But that's that would be kind of a gross, you know, contamination of a surface, right? Um, and I do think that close contact as well as, far field away from an individual in the same indoor space are important. I think, you know, all the data that I've looked at and the modeling that I've done suggests that even in close contact, it's that concentrated aerosol plume, not large droplets, but that concentrated aerosol plume that's coming out of an infector's respiratory system that you're exposed to that probably dominates um, the inhalation dose of somebody who's receiving it and getting infected. That doesn't mean that there aren't situations where large droplets might splash directly into your mouth or your nose or your eyes or a big piece on your cheek that you swipe and then put in your mouth. So, but I think that all of the evidence seems to be really leaning heavily towards its aerosols, whether you're in close contact or whether you're in the far field. Now I can't attribute a percentage. I think it's, you know, it could be 80%. It could be 90%. There's still other pathways, but I think aerosols, all of the data, all of the modeling indicates that that's the dominant pathway. Yeah, and even if it's 80 or 90%, that 10% represents a lot of people. When, when we've got millions and millions of people who have developed this, this, uh, you know, this yeah. viral infection, I guess. You yeah, call it. So, so I will say that you know the easy, cheap technology that prevents all of those pathways is universal mask wearing when you're indoors with people that you don't know, right? So 
that'll prevent large droplet contamination. It'll, it'll dramatically reduce um, uh, inhalation of aerosols if everybody's wearing at least halfway decent masks um, and reduce the amount of fomites, you know, uh, contamination of surfaces. So that is, there's not a lot of rocket science to masks, right? You just have to have a good fitting mask. It's a decent mask. And if a lot of people are wearing them, you're going to cut down on all the pathways, no matter what they are. And, and, and again, I think the dominant pathway is aerosols. The, the nice thing about the mask with aerosols is you reduce the emissions from the infector. You also reduce the uptake from somebody who could become infected. So I've said this since the start of the pandemic, that if you have mediocre masks, right, let's say that it's for only 40% effective at reducing emissions and only 40% effective at, at protecting you while you inhale, 40 plus 40 turns out to be 40% plus 40% of the remaining 60%, which is 24%. So you get a 64% inhalation dose reduction if everybody's wearing pretty lousy masks, pretty mediocre masks. You get up to 60% effective masks. Now you got 60% plus 60% of the remaining 40%. You're up to 84% inhalation dose reduction of aerosol. So that's not even a great mask, right? So masks work and all of the evidence related to masks from epidemiological studies that have been done during the pandemic, from great research in a lot of different laboratories around the country and different types of masks and how protected they are from emissions and inhalation all suggest that, you know, this is like, this is a cheap, a after vaccination, this is number two in terms of protecting you. Hmm. Interesting. Now, we're going to go into more of, you know, the mode of transmission we've been talking about, disinfection, and then social distancing. But before we do, can you tell us a little bit about your effort to develop an educational tool for assessing parallel interventions for lowering inhalation dose for aerosols and risk of infection in buildings? That sounds like uh, masks. <laughs> well, it's, it can be more than that. It can be masks, it can be ventilation. Sure, a big part of it, though. Okay. Improved filtration, um, you know, reduced occupancy. Etc. But you know they came about basically uh, because schools seem to be really struggling with this issue of how you lower the risk in a classroom for both the students and the teachers. You don't want students getting sick and bringing it home. And so I I, I basically spent about a week trying to develop a model that would predict um, the emissions of respiratory aerosols from an infector in a mechanistic way, predicting with that size distribution of particles, little particles all the way up to larger particles, what happens to them in the indoor space? How many of them deposit on surfaces? Uh, if we have portable air cleaners, how much are removed in a portable HEPA air cleaner? How much is removed in uh, a filtration system in an HVAC system, et cetera? And then tracking that all the way to the receptor and predicting how much a, a receptor actually inhales. And depending upon the particle size, where it deposits and how much deposits in the receptor's respiratory system. Um, developed that model, and then I applied it to a restaurant in Guangzhou, China, to predict the total volume of particles that likely deposited in the respiratory systems of the large number of individuals that were infected in this area, in this restaurant. And I was struck by the number. It was on the order of a picoliter. For, for your audience, a picoliter is one trillionth of a liter, right? So not a millionth of a liter, not a billionth of a liter, a trillionth of a liter. It's a little tiny speck of volume that you'd have a hard time seeing it was on, uh, you know, on a piece of paper. So a tiny amount of volume of particles 
in the respiratory systems of those infected in Guangzhou, China, caused caused this outbreak. And there's great video footage from that event, great metadata in China. So there's cameras everywhere taking pictures of everything, right? Um, And Hugo Lee and his team were allowed to go into the restaurant afterwards and sort of simulate the conditions using thermal mannequins and hot plates and looking at the ventilation patterns and conditions. We have a lot of data that was useful for the model that, that made this the best case scenario for applying the model. Then what happened was um, a team at the University of Oregon, Kevin Vanden Weilenberg, who you probably know, and one of his uh, PhD students, Human, um, they caught wind of what I was doing and they said, hey, why don't we put a nice user interface on this so people can use the model? And so they took the model that I developed and they put this really beautiful user interface on it. And if, if you allow me to, maybe I'll, sh- I'll, uh, I'll share my screen and just show you what that looks like. Yeah, but please do. I was going to ask you. Yeah, it allows the user to sort of turn knobs and say, if I do this, how much does my risk of infection go up or go down? And you want to move that to as low as possible. So um, if I can share my screen, I will, let's see. And there, there, are, there we go. Yeah, so, so. So it's at safeairspaces.com. Yeah, we wanted to make this available to anybody who wants to use it. So you can just go to www.safeairspaces.com. And again, the model is intended as an educational tool, although we've applied it to, to in a research setting, and it works works pretty well. Um, we can talk about that later if you want. But um, but it accounts for a lot of things that other models to predict infection don't account for, the typical uh, airborne infectious disease model. So this will account for the particle size distribution, how many particles uh, you know deposit on surfaces in the indoor environment, how much are removed by filtration, et cetera. Uh, and it's focused right now on the far field, but we've been doing some experiments to um, to incorporate into it a, a, a near field. So if you're within about three or four feet of somebody uh, factor. So this is what the interface looks like. Um, and I've just showed some results here for no masks in an underventilated classroom. Um, and you get all this information here. So the user inputs information here. Unfortunately, the platform that you, is used is all metric and there's no option for converting this to, to English units. Um, and it only allows capitals. So that's why you have this weird capital M, M, M2 for meter squared. But once you put all your data in, in metric units over here, it will summarize them all in English units. So something that's a little bit more common to many people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the key here is this thermometer looking thing here. And so the black ball is essentially your risk level. And we define what risk levels are in the model but you don't wanna be in the red zone basically. So you can see for this classroom environment here, we're starting off with nobody wearing masks in, a, in an underventilated classroom, which is about 80% of the classrooms I've studied in a couple hundred classrooms in Texas. Um, you can see we're in extreme risk. A lot of infections will occur if there's an infector in this classroom. You can also see on here uh, a little icon here, of the respiratory system that shows where most of the particles based on the particle size distribution from the infector, where they're going in our respiratory system, how much are being captured in the nasal pharyngeal region, how much are being captured in the upper respiratory system, how much are depositing in the lowest parts of the lungs. And this little donut over here kind of shows you the ultimate fate of the particles. How many are just simply eventually being ventilated in the outdoor environment? How many are being deposited on surfaces? What what percentage are depositing in the lungs of all the students in the Hmm. classroom? So you get this kind of cool additional information. Now, the, the value of this model, right, is that um, 
you can you can take a scenario which is a bad scenario like this and say, well, what can I do to make it better? So the next slide is everybody puts on masks, which are relatively mediocre masks. So I think we assumed 40 uh, Yeah, we assumed around 40 percent uh, roughly effectiveness of masks. That's not a great mask. Poor fits of good masks or or poor masks, period. And you can see that the black ball dropped from sort of high in the red region all the way down to kind of the borderline of what we consider high and moderate risk with, with a substantial reduction in the number of infections in the classroom. So we go one step more here and we say, well, let's, let's start ventilating the classroom, right? So now we go to increased ventilation. So here we are uh, somewhat greater than ASHRAE 62.1, still no filtration. We, we, we did prescribe a high emitter in this example. Uh, and now we get to a risk reduction of 82%. And a little black ball now drops all the way down to um, you know, pretty close to the low risk area. So just by everybody wearing masks and increasing the ventilation, those two things, we get this dramatic reduction in inhalation dose. And there's a lot more details here. We pulled in Chuck Haas from Drexel University who helped us with a dose response model that's the closest we know to, um, to, uh, to COVID-19. Um, and so this, this is actually predicting real risks of infection. Um, and then we can go one scenario more, which is everybody wears masks, we increase ventilation, uh, and now we, uh, we put a filtration system. This is a, basically a, a HEPA-based air cleaner uh, in the classroom. And then we also take uh, 20 minute mask breaks. I think this is every two hours. I can't remember what the simulation was in the classroom. And you can see we dropped the ball all the way down here. So just by layering a few things, which is not, there's no rocket science here, you know, wear masks, increase ventilation, use an, you know, HEPA air cleaner off the shelf and, and take a break once in a while. And while the students are outside, um, continue to ventilate the classroom, continue to filter the classroom so that you drop any virus-laden aerosols down before everybody comes back in. So you're sort of starting at a lower scenario again as you start to build back up if there's an infector in the classroom. So that's kind of the value of this tool. And anybody can just go to that site and, 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 and play with it. It was intended really to just kind of help people with visualizing the impacts of not rocket science, you know, pretty simple things you can do to, to reduce your risk. And you can, you can, you can see in this, ex, you can see in this example, the donut over here is when we put the HEPA filtration system in this yellow portion of the donut is the total number of, of aerosols that came out of the infector's respiratory system that have been captured on the HEPA filter. Right. So you can see the, the oh. big bang for your buck you can get by putting a single one HEPA filter in a standard size, I think we assumed a 700 or 800, about a 600 or 700 square foot classroom, 600 square feet. Now, I noticed a, a couple of things. One is there's no um, spacing, distancing. Is distancing less of a, uh, less, of, less effective essentially than what we thought originally? Yeah, so distancing is an, you know, I think social distancing is still important. I think, um, I think it has some benefit, right? And, and, and the, the benefit is really, um, I believe, rather than avoiding large spittle that's coming out of somebody's mouth, for lack of a better term, it's that when you're close, if you're, if an infector is facing you and you're two feet from them or three feet from them, 
there is this concentrated cloud of aerosols with much higher levels of virus-laden particles per, per liter of air, if you will, in that zone as that's coming out of the respiratory, uh, out of the respiratory system of the infector, right? So if, if you're the receptor, you're inhaling a lot more aerosols if you're in close contact, right? I've scoured the literature. I've looked at all my data that I produced about 20 years ago. Um, and uh, one of my colleagues, a couple of colleagues and I at Portland State started doing experiments in the laboratory, looking at close contact versus far field, meaning more than say 10 feet away from an infector. And, and depending on the mixing conditions in a room, um, depending on the orientation of the body of you versus the infector that you're talking to, the magnifier, if I will, if, if, we, if, if we can, the, the magnifier, in other words, how much higher the aerosol levels are if you're two to three feet from somebody versus 20 feet from them in the same room, that magnifier isn't as huge as people would think. It's on the order of two to seven-ish with maybe typically around three or so. So what that means is if you're three feet from somebody who's infected for 15 minutes, that's kind of the equivalent if the magnifier was three of being 20 feet away from them for 45 minutes. Does okay. that make sense? Yes. The magnifier of three. And, and if you look at outbreak patterns and who's infected in, in different scenarios, it does appear that the people that are 20 feet away that never come anywhere in close contact to the, to the individual who's infected are also getting infected. And those that are near the infector are also getting infected. And so, and so both of those are important and, you know, staying away from, you know, more spacing between individuals, I think does help reduce the risk of that concentrated portion of the, the aerosol plume. But it's kind of down on the list when, when you're looking at um, masking, ventilation, filtration. Yeah, it, it is. And in fact, if everybody's wearing a mask, it's really down on the list because when everybody's wearing a mask, that means the infector is also wearing a mask. And if an infector is wearing a mask, then kind of the momentum of that plume of respiratory aerosols, those particles that are coming out of their respiratory system, uh, the momentum is, is dampened substantially. And so you don't have as high of a concentration of aerosols if you're speaking to a person and you're only three feet away if they're wearing a mask. So yeah, it, it's way down on the list of everybody's wearing masks. It's, yeah, I, it's, it's part of layered risk reduction, so it shouldn't be taken off the list. But right. it's it's not as significant as other things we can do. Well, and certainly if you can keep 50 feet away or be in a separate room, it's, you know, the distancing has its place. Distancing definitely has its place, yes. Okay. Let me try and sneak one more in here before we go to halftime because I think it'll be fairly quick. If it's not, let me know. You mentioned putting a HEPA filter in. And in the second half, I want to talk more about the Corsi-Rosenthal box. And you're using MERV-13 filters in there. Not quite HEPA. HEPA is more like MERV 17, 18. Um, how big of a difference is there when you put a MERV 13 in versus a HEPA filter? So the the benefit of the, this do-it-yourself, I guess people are calling the Corsi-Rosenthal box. I, I kind of came up with the idea for the box, and then Jim Rosenthal, who I think you know uh, in Fort Worth, Texas, built one the next day and put it out on social media and it sort of became this sort of grew like wildfires in terms of people building them. But the benefit it works for of, wildfires too. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it does. I mean the benefit. So, so 
if you if you look at the particle distribution and sizes of the particles that convey the SARS-CoV-2 virus, these are the aerosol particles are the ride share for the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, and you look at the efficiency of a MERV-13 filter for those particle sizes, right? Uh, or a HEPA filter. You know, a HEPA filter, if it's properly seated and designed, is going to be 99.97% or better, right, for all those particle sizes. The MERV-13 filter for the lower part, for the smaller particle sizes might be 60%. For the larger particle sizes, you may be a 95%, right? So it depends on the particle size. But the benefit of these Corsi-Rosenthal filters is the flow rate is huge. If you, if you design it as being uh, essentially uh, parallel four or five filters, MERV-13 filters in the box, the flow rate is much larger um, than a typical off-the-shelf HEPA filter. So while the removal efficiency might be lower across all the particle sizes, you just get a lot more passes through the filter. Yep. And, and yep. so I can't show you the results because we're working on them to get published um, at the moment. But it, it turns out that for 85 bucks to build a system, you can get clean air delivery rates as high as 900 cubic feet per minute with a Corsi-Rosenthal box. So roughly a third the cost of an off-the-shelf HEPA filter, a third to a quarter of the cost, you get triple the clean air delivery rate. So, so the magnifier here is sort of nine to 12 times greater clean air delivery rate per dollar uh, with, these, with these units. Now, you have to be very careful when you build them. You got to make sure that you properly seal along the edges of those filters, because if you don't and you have some openings, then, you know, air likes to take the path of least resistance and it'll go through those gaps and bypass the filter. So that's that's really the key is to make sure that all those edges are properly sealed. I think it's a great example of research to practice, though. You know, it's just one of the best I've ever seen, actually, Rich. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, it was. (laughs) I just stayed up late one night in, in Portland uh, during the pandemic. There were a lot of researchers during the pandemic. And, and I think this is a really good thing. And I think you can appreciate this, Joe, based on all the conversations we had. The pandemic caused researchers that oftentimes don't think about how to do something that's practical for the right. public, right? It, it, it Amazing the number of academics and researchers who are suddenly trying to do things that were practical. You know, that's why I developed that little calculator. I wanted schools to have something that they could use. Um, typically in academia, you don't get any credit for things like that. And right. that doesn't, that's not something that helps you get a merit pay increase at a university, but, but suddenly academics are doing those kinds of things. And I just stayed up late one night thinking about access and the number of people that can't afford a $300 HEPA air cleaner. I mean, there are, there's a vast swath of United Americans who can't afford, you know, $300 is a lot, right? Um, and so I thought, how can we build a really effective lower cost air cleaner? Now it's still, you know, going to cost you depending upon what kind of deal you can get on the MERV 13 filters. It still can cost you up to, you know, $85, $100 to build one of these boxes. But with the, with the parallel filters, the large surface area, it puts a lot less resistance on the fan, on the motor on the fan, which means that the fan should last a lot longer. It means higher flow rate because there's less resistance on the fan, on the motor. Um, it, it means that you don't have to, you know, change them out that often because you're spreading all of the flow over a large surface area, these pleated MERV-13 filters, and there's multiple in parallel that the air is going through. So it, it ought to last a long time. And 
And I, I had no idea when I just put this on paper and I, I threw it out on social media. I said, Hey, why don't we try this? And the next day, Jim tried it and, and tweeted it. And then it just sort of, it really took off. And it's been, it's been heartwarming to me to see fourth graders building these things for their schools on, yep. uh, you know, on social media and uh, some universities, I think have, have actually built a couple thousand of them. There's a lot of people doing research on them now, including some really great research at UC Davis, uh, doing comparisons of noise uh, uh, relative to HEPA filters of effectiveness in terms of clean air delivery rates and in all those things, long-term performance. So, so it's, it's, it's been fun to watch. Yeah. We're getting a bunch of questions. What I want to do is let's go to halftime and then we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about, because it's like I said, one of the best examples of research to practice I've ever seen. So we'll be back in 90 seconds with Dr. Richard Corsi. We're talking about COVID and how it's accelerated indoor air quality research to practice. Our marquee sponsor, Instascope, more jobs done faster with the future of IAQ assessment technology, unlimited samples, instant results, and cloud-based data at instascope.co. Association sponsors are AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, AIHA.org, ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science, ACGIH.org, The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, See More Deeply Through Science and Research, CIRI science.org the indoor air quality association iaqa.org the restoration industry association the granddaddy of the restoration industry restorationindustry.org the iicrc a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry iicrc.org healthy buildings america Honolulu, Hawaii, January 18 through 20, 2022. HB2021-America.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories. Free shipping, great pricing, same-day results with no rush fee. AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus. Feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us. ParticlesPlus.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, over 20 years manufacturing accurate, reliable IAQ instrumentation for portable, short-term, and continuous monitoring. GrayWolfSensing.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations. TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals, availability, reliability, and ease. For all your IAQ and restoration needs at sunbeltrentals.com. April Air, healthy air, healthy home, April, A-I-R-E.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers, healthyindoors.com. All right, we're back with the second half of our show, Dr. Richard Corsi. Okay, Rich, you know, Six or seven years ago, I remember um, we, we did this little healthy building summit here and Linda Wigington came up and she spoke and she's with the Roxas reducing outdoor contaminants in indoor spaces. 
Um, she had a, a box fan with a MERV 13 filter taped to it. And I thought that was maybe the, were you aware of that when you were developing that they had been, you know, playing with this for years? Yeah. Yeah. I had certainly seen that a lot of people were actually using a single filter attached to a box fan. And, um, you know, that, that'll actually work. It will, it, what'll happen is that you'll get, a, you'll get a higher resistance on the fan. So that'll lower the amount of airflow through the fan. It'll put, you know, more resistance on the motor, which means that the motor might burn out a little bit longer. I'm not sure how significant that is to many because box fans are pretty cheap and you can just re- replace the box fan. So one of the motivations for the, for the cube or the box uh, was to lower that resistance, increase the flow rate, and therefore increase the clean air delivery rate. I do have a slide I can show you. Please uh, do. Please, I, I had more. John looking for one, actually, but go ahead. Um, let's see. Share screen. How's that? All right. Let me uh, just find the right slide here. Um, here we go. Um, so so if you can, can you see this? Yes. Yeah. So this was, um, an ex- this was basically a, a field experiment with a single MERV 13 filter on a box fan uh, in a relatively small office, uh, an office that's kind of like a large walk-in closet, if you will. Um, and it was an experiment done by a, 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 a young professor at Portland State University, uh, David Burnett, shows the PM 2.5 concentration on the vertical axis. And this is during a uh, bad wildfire season in Oregon. So this is this is wildfire particles, which is a somewhat different distribution than obviously respiratory particles that come out of it and somebody who's infected. Um, but it but you can see the starting point. He had a steady state of around 160 micrograms per cubic meter of PM 2.5 in his apartment. Um, and that's a really high concentration of PM yeah, 2.5. That's very high, yes. This was kind of the worst of the worst season in Portland, Oregon that year. Um, I was one mile from the evacuation zone, so we really felt it in, in our house. It was just a bad season. So then he basically, uh, in this small office again, that was not particularly well ventilated, um, you know, he turns on this box fan with a single filter on it. And you can see the PM 2.5 levels drop to, you know, 10 micrograms per cubic meters within about 25 minutes. So that, you know, this single filter on a box fan, pretty cheap, you know, a MERV 13 filter on a box fan might cost you $35, If you take these data though, and you sort of analyze them um, versus not having a box fan, well, if you just analyze them at steady state here at uh, 25 minutes in here, you get a clean air delivery rate, you know, on the order of 80 to 90 cubic feet per minute. So, so it looks great because this is a, but this is, remember, this is a very small space and, and it's not a well-ventilated space. So you're going to get a really positive impact. And in those kind of spaces, in a, in a, in a, in a small office, in a, in a bathroom, uh, those kinds of things, that, that combination of a single filter and a box fan can actually work really well, Right. But the, the disadvantage is if you try to put that in a much larger space, you're not going to get as high of a flow rate. That kind of clean air delivery rate is not going to give you as big of a bang for your buck as if you actually had a box made out of MERV 13 filters all in parallel with lower resistance on the, on the motor, lower resistance on the fan, higher flow rate. You get a bit better clean air delivery rate. So I would say there's a place for each. I don't know if I would want a Corsi Rosenthal box in a small office 
right? Right. It, too much airflow there, and it's going to be no, it's going to be noisier, right? So this might be a better option for smaller spaces. Uh, I think the Corsi Rosenthal box is more appropriate for things like 800 square foot classrooms, uh, you know, entire apartments, small apartments, those kinds of things. Well, um, let me point out another thing that um, the rocks yeah, I, people yeah. were looking at is they would put that in a window, and so they were they were both getting more ventilation and filtering, but just filtering the outdoor air. Sure. So, so yeah, during wild times when, when they may be more applicable. Absolutely. So during wildfire season, that might be a great option, right? Is to, it, you know, if you need, you know, during COVID, it's tough because we want to ventilate. And if it's COVID during wildfire season, we don't want to ventilate and we, you know, we don't want to ventilate to bring out wildfire smoke in. We want to ventilate for COVID-19. So we have to look for these other options. That's where portable air cleaners in general, I think, have their biggest bang for the buck is when you can't ventilate as much as you'd like to, um, you know, essentially having a portable air cleaner in the space can give you kind of an equivalent reduction in aerosol particles that is like increasing the amount of ventilation with clean outdoor air by several air changes per hour. In some cases, if you have like the 900 cubic feet per minute cadre, that's going to give you in a classroom something on the order of six air changes per hour equivalent of outdoor air coming in. Nice. So, yeah, and I just, I just, uh, the next slide basically shows you what I told you before. We do have some results showing that for this kind of configuration, this was actually Jim Rosenthal's box that he built the next day. Um, but you can see here that schools and other organizations are building hundreds of these things and handing them out. Um, um, you know, our cadre per dollar for a Corsi Rosenthal box um, is really high compared to a $300 HEPA-based air cleaner. We can get yeah. a much higher clean air delivery rate for much lower cost. So. Now, there's been a change since uh, Jim put that one together, and, and I'm seeing more of the boxes with the fan on the top. So I think they're pulling air in from the side. and then. But that leads to some of the questions we have in the chat. Um, First of all, what was the reason behind putting the fan on the top as opposed to on the side? So I think initially there was some concern that if you put it on the side and somebody's, you know, um, um, in a classroom, say, sitting where the airflow coming out of the, the fan is directly impinging on them, it might increase their risk because they're basically getting a lot of airflow that's basically from the whole classroom coming at them, right? So that was the original concern, I think. But I think the benefit to putting it on top is that one of the things we can do to help ourselves is make, make use of the volume of spaces, right? So vertical mixing tends to be very, very good. If you have a fan on top and it's mixing upwards, then you're using the, the volume of that space that oftentimes is not, not as used, especially if you're in a room with a tall ceiling. Um, and if you're blowing air up, you know, has to come back down. And there's some benefit there in terms of, um, and it's not going to come back down in the same space. It's going to come back down in adjacent spaces, right? There's a benefit there in terms of close contact that we haven't talked enough about. And that benefit is that if there is an infector and they're, you know, and they will be releasing uh, virus-laden aerosol particles and you're three feet away, that downward motion of air that's associated with that upward motion that comes down somewhere else is really effective at breaking up that concentrated aerosol plume between you and them. So mixing has that advantage that it can, 
it can it can actually reduce transmission due to concentrated aerosol plumes in close contact. So I, I actually think um, that was not part of what I suggested originally. It's something that people just started doing, and I think it was a smart idea. Well, and I think that illustrates a point made by a, um, I guess we had Dr. John Mulholland, who said we should be, instead of saying research to practice, we should be saying research to practice and back again. And um, I think that's that's happening in, in real you know, real life right here. Yeah, I agree. I agree a hundred percent. And you, and you remember Joe, all the way back to 2011, indoor air 2011 in Austin, we tried to build into that conference. And so so many researchers come to that conference is to have practitioners come and have sessions that researchers would go to and listen to the practitioners to find out what, what their major concerns are, what their major obstacles are, what, what the things they have to deal with. So the researchers can hear practitioners and, and hopefully use that to go back and do the research that helps practitioners, right? And I think a lot of that has been happening during the pandemic. This pandemic has been a disruptor in our lives in so many ways. But I think it's been a disruptor in terms of the general public suddenly becoming aware uh, of the importance of indoor air quality and the general public finally learning terms like ventilation and air changes per hour and and HEPA and MRF 13 these are just not terms that were in the general lexicon of Americans in general before this pandemic so this heightened awareness of the importance of indoor air quality I think will generate a lot more research opportunities for people to do research yep. I think it will also hopefully generate be, because of this practice to research to practice kind of paradigm, I hope, and I've always felt this, and you know this, Joe, that researchers need to, to, be, to be working more closely with people on the front lines, with practitioners. I've always felt that, and, and I hope that that's one of the disruptions of this pandemic, is that we see more of that happening in the future. I sure hope so. All right, let's, let's go to the next text question here. Could you explain the shroud? This is something John and I were talking about before uh, before the show here today, you can put a little shroud, cardboard or whatever, um, to make sure that the, well, maybe you could explain why the shroud is or is not important. Yeah, it's a great question. And and I want to also say, cause I, I need to be honest, that is not something that I had actually proposed initially. It was again, you know, people sort of took that initial concept and started and started adding to it and improving it, which is great. So I think it was David Elstrom, um, um, I think it was David Elstrom uh, in Canada who, who, who came up with that idea. And the idea is that when you have essentially a, um, a circular fan, right, movement, fans circular, and you have a square box with the fans inside, <clears throat> that what happens is in the corners and the edges, and this is really hard to explain, it's a fluid mechanics phenomena uh, related to... Um, related to what are called vortices, what are, which are related to vortices. You, you basically get you can get flow going back in the opposite direction to make up for the flow coming out. And so in the corners of the fan, what happens is that some of that flow kind of recirculates in the opposite direction. You get turbulence. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a basically turbulence phenomenon without getting into all the details. It's actually pretty complicated um, from a theoretical standpoint, from a fluid mechanic standpoint, but by putting that shroud around the edges so that, uh, when you're looking at the outlet of the box fan, it essentially 
uh, you're looking at the everything to the tip of the fan blades, essentially. Um, so you're just seeing really the fan, right, and its rotation. You reduce that, and that gives you somewhat, not, not hugely better performance, but somewhat better for, for performance. It's a nice little addition to, to the box, yeah. And not much money either. I mean, you just no. got out a piece of <laughs> a piece of cardboard. Hey, let's. Yeah. What we're going to do? We're going to go to the roundup, and I'm going to keep trying to get to these uh, questions on the text. But if we don't, uh, we we now have this afterthoughts.iaqradio.com. We're after the show. We'll try our best to answer the questions we didn't get to during the show and discuss things that we talked about on the show. So let's go to the roundup, John. The Roundup is brought to you by April Air, providing healthy humidity, ventilation, and air purity solutions for new and existing homes. April Air, healthy air, healthy home at aprilaire.com. All right, so I've got a question here that says, but the DIY MERV 13 increased, increased CADR still does not capture the smallest particles it just recirculates them back through the MER-13, right? Or am I being stupid? Well, it captures some of them, but Rich, you can explain that better than me. Yeah, it captures some of them for the really small particles. Let's say it captures 50% of them uh, in a single pass through the MER-13 filter with one of these boxes, right? But if you can get over the, over the time course that air stays in a room before it completely ventilates out, if you can get 10 recirculations through the box, Let's just pick 10, right? Um, that means that you're getting 50% the first time and then 50% of the remaining 50%, that gives you 75%. And then you get 50% the third time, you get 50% of the remaining 25%. So now it gives you 12.5% added to set. So pretty soon you're up to 87.5%. So it's it's really those numbers of circulations. Even if, it's, even if the efficiency is 50% or 40% or 30%, right, for small particles, is you have a large number of recirculations through that system, that's going to add up to a lot of removal of those small particles. So that's the benefit of having higher flow rates, uh, more recirculations through the system. So that leads to the next question, which actually John and I had talked a little bit about before the show. Now, but you're even though you're not capturing them all, let's say you're capturing 50%, but you are uh, in effect as our our listeners said um, you're removing 50, but you're also effectively mixing the other 50 into the room. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. So you're capturing 50% of 50% you didn't capture. And so that gets mixed back into the room. But again, if you've got a high enough flow rate through your system, that stuff that you've mixed back in the room is going to go through the system again and go through the system again and go through the system again. So every time it goes through the system, you're reducing 50% each time for that particle size, pretty soon that 50% removal effectiveness, I'm sorry, removal efficiency, if you've got enough passes through the system, you end up removing 90% of those small particles, right? Or more. Um, Now, okay, so we're we're mixing. Well, let me me check. There's another question on donating some time. One of our audience wants to donate some time. trouble finding and selecting the right people. Can you give them a thought on doing that? 
Um, I didn't quite. Un- I'm sorry. Donating time. Well, he'd, look, he'd like to donate some time and maybe uh, help with you know building these boxes or getting people to use them more commonly. Can you know? But he hasn't been able to get to the right people. Who who should we be talking to about this? You know, simple, inexpensive way of getting people in a little safer uh, environment. That's a great question. There are or, there are groups across the country right now that are building these things. Uh, I recently had a conversation with a nurse, um, uh, a professor of nursing at, let's say, the university of, at the University of Connecticut, and she's doing this. She's trying to help, kind of, getting people to build these for communities. And it'll take me a second, uh, and maybe after the show, Joe, I can I can email that to you if you can provide that information to, to others. I'll, I'll send you some others as well. Okay. Off the top That's of my head, there's so, there's so many people doing that right now. Uh, and you see it on social media that I'll, I'll try to dig up some possibilities. I appreciate that. Now, the other question is, have you done comparisons between like a MERV 11, MERV 13, MERV 15, HEPA? Have you looked at, I know it's a lot to do, but obviously uh, that's what you guys do. Yeah, so I have not seen, uh, and that doesn't mean it hasn't been done, because um, I've been very busy the last few months in my new job, but uh, I have not seen anybody build boxes out of MERV 11 or MERV 12 filters. My guess is that, you know, that you're going to get pretty good clean air delivery rates with MERV 12 filters, too, and it'll be a little bit cheaper, probably decent with MERV 11, and it'll be a little bit cheaper, right? You may not get 900 cubic feet per minute. Maybe with a MERV 11, you end up getting, you know, 400 cubic feet per minute, but that's still HEPA filter, right? That's still kind of as good as off-the-shelf HEPA filters. So I am building a small lab at UC Davis with my quote-unquote free time late on Saturday nights. (laughs) And, and, uh, And that's one of the things I want to do. So you've just sort of nailed what I'll be trying to do over the next six months or so is looking at all sorts of configurations and with the goal of trying to provide options for lowering the costs for people where, you know, building one of these out of MERV 13 filters might still be cost prohibitive. You know, they can't afford 90 bucks or a hundred dollars. So can we lower that cost even more and still have a reasonably effective air cleaner? Um, that's what I'll be doing. And there's a bunch of students here that are eager to, to actually work on that. I know you're busy. We're, we may run a minute or two over here. You okay? Great. All right. What I'd like to do before we go is let's kind of summarize it. What were the, you know, what are the big takeaways that we've learned from this pandemic? You've gone through a bunch of them already, but when it comes to research to practice and trying to get better indoor air quality in general in people's, you know, built environments, uh, what are the big takeaways from this pandemic? So I'm going to admit that I had a feeling you were going to ask me this question. So I, I just jotted down, jotted down a number of things, Joe. Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, you know, I, I think our, our, you know, and I'm, I'm not a social scientist at all. So take what I say with a grain of salt with respect to anything I say that's not technical, right? Is I think we learned that uh, being prepared matters, leadership matters, um, Ruling out the worst case scenario uh, at the very start of the pandemic was catastrophic. Um, you know, we, we said, here are the possible transmission pathways. Let's not worry about that one, the, air, the, the aerosol route, right? That was yeah. like, obviously now we know what a massive blunder, right? Um, 
Yep. So preparedness is critical. Not ruling things out is important. Um, I think science and engineering gave us all of the tools to drive this pandemic into the ground. It gave us vaccines. It gave us effective masks. It gave us good filtration systems. You know, all of those things. Um, but for all of the technology we had to drive this thing into the ground, um, what we failed on was was more of human behavior. And I I, I think. And I felt this for a long time. I, I don't remember if you were at Indoor Air 2014, Joe, or not in, in, in Hong Kong, but no. I, I gave the closing plenary and the topic. I did was, see that. There was a, a video of it, I believe. Okay. Yeah. The topic was the future of indoor air sciences, where we need to go. And I, I pleaded there that we needed to bring more human behavioralists into our society, that people that that do chemistry and microbiology and physics of building and control systems and all those things. We need to immerse ourselves in people that understand human behavior because so often it's the humans, it's humans in our households and our schools that are that, that change things that affect our exposure. Right. And I asked the question of the closing plenary with, I don't know how many people were left at that point, 700 people or something. I said, how many of you, our human behavioralists, psychologists, you know, et cetera. Not one person in our entire society raised their hand, none, zero. And so I said at that time that we needed to work with those that understand human behavior and why people do the things that they do and also how to better communicate to the public. Uh, and I think we've seen failures on both of those fronts during this pandemic. So I'll say again that we need to bring people that understand human behavior into all the things that we do. And as researchers, we need to get, we need to be much better at communicating, you know, important technical issues to the public and to practitioners, the general public and to practitioners. So I think we've learned that from the pandemic. Um, yeah. I mean, I, that's the, the, the thing that's the saddest and most frustrating to me is we were not lacking tools to save hundreds of thousands of lives. There was no rocket science really in, in any of the things that we needed from a technology standpoint, other than vaccines. Yeah. And science gave us this amazing gift with the vaccines. Um, and when you add that to all the other things we already had, right. Masks, filtration, ventilation, et cetera. It's, it's just sad that we ended up where we did. So we need to be more prepared next time. We need to acknowledge the importance of human behavior. We need to acknowledge the importance of communication uh, of, of technical issues. Yeah, that's, that's, that's sort of my summary of the last two years. <laughs> well, and, and not only do we need to get out of our silos, the, the medical community needs to get out of their silos. They, they just blew this horribly and it's a shame yeah i i I know i agree with you there and that there was a lot of tension between building scientists and aerosol scientists on the one hand and the medical and public health community on the other hand at the beginning of this pandemic there were literally fights going on on social media between these two groups that ought to be working closely together so that's another great message joe is that going forward there will be another pandemic it may be worse than this one in our lifetimes right um, we need to be prepared for that. We need to have sort of rapid response teams. We need to have 
Uh, I just saw Susan Valenti say industrial engineers. I agree. We need we need people with all sorts of skill sets coming together, industrial hygienists with you know the research community, with the medical community, with the public health community, with human behavioralists. We ought to have rapid response teams that that are that have all of these people involved with them, you, you know, involved in them to sort of plan appropriately. And we did not have that. You know, the CDC is 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 great at, at what they do, which is you know disease and um, and and health. Uh, they're not great at building science. And clearly, what we've learned is they're not very good at aerosol science either. Right. Um, so so. And that's not a knock on them. That's not what they were ever meant to do. But the resistance to listen to people that are building scientists and aerosol scientists initially was really frustrating. And so my hope is that we can mend that, we can heal that, and 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 have diverse teams working together to to try to stave off the next pandemic. Well, and you know, obviously, I don't want to be too tough on the medical community. They they've been through a lot as well, but uh, it would be nice to see some of those barriers broken down between different groups. And can I do one more thing, Joe? If you can absolutely. let me share my screen, I just have to show this because I I found this picture last night, um, and I thought I I thought we could. Whoa, where did it go? Oh, maybe I didn't put it in there. Shoot, 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 shoot. Ah, there it is. All right, oh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> That was at home, Kim, in, uh, in Austin, oh, wow. about three and a half years ago or so. A couple of happy guys right there. Huh? <laughs> we had a great time down there, Rich. Thanks so much. We appreciate you joining us. I uh, also want to thank the Z-Man, my co-host. John, you got to have faith at the controls. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners, our audience, and our sponsors. Um, we're going to be off next week for Thanksgiving, but we'll be back December 3rd. And don't forget, you can check us out at afterthoughts.iaqradio.com. We'll try and get answers to some of the questions we didn't get to. So we'll see you all in two weeks on the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.